Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already The Rialto restaurant was a mainstay in Ferndale, Michigan, a small city on the northern border of Detroit. Opened in the mid-1920s, it changed hands just one time during its seven-decade life. The Rialto was a place where a local swim team could meet after practice, couples might go for a date night, or people could pop in for a quick bite. The large sign over the door lured diners in with promises of home cooking, cocktails, and barbecue ribs. Over its 70-year run, Rialto saw its fair share of eventful and colorful occurrences. A fire in 1928 caused some minor damage to the kitchen. In 1950, police attended the Woodward Avenue location after being called about a rogue bat flying around the place. An officer, armed with an air rifle, entered the restaurant and fired three bullets at the bat, solving the immediate issue, but I'm sure it created a bit of a mess for the poor staff to clean up. In March of 1981, the first of two tragedies struck the Rialto. At 3 p.m. on March 15th, a drunk driver lost control and plowed his car into the front window of the Rialto. The 90 or so customers inside screamed in horror as the car smashed through a plate glass window and into the banquet room. The driver fled the scene, and restaurant employees gave chase with the waitress, Connie Giff, apprehending the driver in an alley behind the restaurant. Within minutes, first responders arrived and started to give aid to those who needed it. Of the 90 people inside the restaurant, 30 were seated in the banquet area, but most escaped with minor injuries and shock. However, restaurant regulars... Cecily and Henry Larrabee bore the brunt of the impact as they were seated next to the window. Both were taken to Beaumont Hospital in neighboring Royal Oak, while 57-year-old Henry only sustained minor head wounds and was quickly released. Cecily suffered more serious injuries and was in critical condition. The Rialto was boarded up following the incident, and owner Charlie Pappas set to work repairing and rebuilding his restaurant. This won't be the last time that Charlie has to repair and rebuild the Rialto. Come with me to July 3rd, 1984, the day that the second tragedy struck Rialto, a day that ended and changed lives and sent shockwaves through the community. In the first days of July 1984, Alvin Freeman, a liquor store owner in his late 30s or early 40s, was remanded into police custody and appeared in court on assault charges. Freeman was going through a messy divorce after a turbulent decade of marriage to his wife, Maddie. A year prior to the court appearance, Freeman assaulted a man whom he believed was having sex with his wife. The man was attacked with an aluminum bar and Freeman had been on bond pending a court date. The date arrived, and Freeman appeared in front of the judge. In court, Freeman was found guilty of the assault, but was not held. 
Instead, he was again released on bond, this time pending a sentencing hearing. The attack was a felony, and it carried a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. Now, Alvin and Maddie Freeman were no strangers to law enforcement. Neighbors report that police would need to intervene when the couple's arguments turned violent. According to those living nearby, their arguments were loud and would spill out onto the street, becoming everyone's business. And listeners, when I said the marriage had been turbulent, I mean it. At some stage, as their marriage was coming to an end, Freeman's wife was charged with reckless use of a firearm against Freeman, who claimed his wife was trying to kill him, and Maddie had tried to have Freeman involuntarily committed to a psychiatric care facility during their marriage. And it wasn't just Alvin and Maddie involved with these violent arguments. Maddie's son from a previous relationship was not a fan of Freeman, and on an unknown date, he shot Freeman in the head. Freeman survived the shot, and it was reported that he didn't experience any ongoing negative effects from the incident, despite rumors that a bullet remained lodged in Freeman's head. On the other side of the coin, Freeman often called for police to provide protection to him as he locked up his liquor store, which was located on 8 Mile Road, on the northern border of Detroit. This was in an area where extra safety precautions were a good idea. As Freeman's home and the liquor store shared a lot, law enforcement became well acquainted with the area and the Freemans. That may be why he was let out on bond. He had strong ties to the community, and police always knew where to find him. After Alvin was released on bond pending his sentencing hearing, his whereabouts are unknown. We do know that at around 5 p.m. that same evening, Freeman entered the Rialto restaurant. 5 p.m. was before the dinner rush, and there were about 20 people, including staff and patrons, inside the building. What happened next is unclear. Different versions of events are reported, with even court documents failing to reach an agreement on what exactly went down that day. The truth is likely to fall somewhere in the middle. After Freeman entered the restaurant, he approached the bar and was asked to take a seat so a waitress could serve him. He complied with the request, and 25-year-old Karen Taylor, who had been working at the Rialto since she was a teenager, was assigned to serve him. Freeman placed his order, and the exact order of what happened next is not clear, but the outcome remains the same. In one version of events, Freeman grabbed Karen in a headlock, produced a gun, and ordered everyone out of the restaurant. Dan Bolin, an off-duty police officer who was dining at a nearby table, drew his weapon and identified himself to Freeman, ordering him to drop his weapon. In another version of events, Freeman approached Dan's table and yelled at him before drawing his weapon and shooting the off-duty officer. In yet another version, Freeman went to the restroom and exited with the gun drawn. In every version, Freeman fired several times, hitting Dan in the wrist and chest, and another patron, 65-year-old Jack Bilski, who was sitting at a table with his wife. Karen was restrained and held by Freeman as patrons streamed out the front doors and onto the street, desperate to find safety. And in all versions, Freeman ended up in possession of Dan's service weapon. Because Freeman had had so many run-ins with law enforcement, both positive and negative, it's entirely possible that Freeman knew Dan Bolin on site, 
However, this has never been confirmed. But Bolin definitely knew who Freeman was and knew his history of family violence. Freeman ordered everyone out of the Rialto. Customers and staff fled the restaurant. Dan was helped out of the building and into a neighboring store, while Jack, likely aided by adrenaline, ran out under his own power before collapsing on the sidewalk just south of the Rialto. Karen, who was being held at gunpoint, stayed in the building alone with Freeman. Victor Grunbaum, the proprietor of a jewelry store on the block, saw patrons fleeing Rialto and went to investigate, taking his rifle with him. Whatever his initial intention was, Victor said he quickly reconsidered and returned to his store to trip the silent alarm, which summoned police to the scene. While Victor pulled the alarm, friends Jan Daly and Nancy Jarkowitz were walking toward Rialto, unaware of what had happened only moments before. They came upon Jack laying on the sidewalk, bleeding heavily. The women were heading toward a store to call for help when the police arrived on scene. Keep in mind, this is all happening along busy Woodward Avenue, a multi-lane thoroughfare that ran from downtown Detroit to the northern Oakland County suburb of Pontiac. And just to give you an idea of the stature and significance of Woodward, the first crow's nest traffic tower in the United States was installed on Woodward Avenue, October 9, 1917. This tower elevated a police officer above the center of the intersection to direct traffic before the structure was replaced in October 1920 with the world's first four-way traffic light. Woodward was and is a busy and significant thoroughfare. Meanwhile, back at the Rialto, officers David Waters and Tom Couple were the first to arrive, and their priority was providing aid to Jack, who had been critically injured, suffering bullet wounds to his abdomen. An ambulance soon arrived on scene and transported Jack to the hospital where he was rushed in for surgery. Officers Waters and Couple then set to work interviewing witnesses and assessing the situation. They were told that there was a lone gunman and potentially two hostages still inside the restaurant, although they would learn a short while later that there was just one hostage, and her name was Karen Taylor. Captain Sullivan and Sergeant Swirtz arrived at 5.06 p.m. and immediately secured the area. They created a perimeter around the building to keep pedestrians and vehicles away. They didn't want to add to the injury toll. They stationed officers around the building and on rooftops so the gunman's movements could be tracked. And listeners, at the end of the episode, we're going to hear from one of those officers who was on the roof of the Rialto, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Officers on scene spoke to Dan Bolin before he was taken to hospital, and he informed them that the gunman was Alvin Freeman. A Rialto employee was able to draw a sketch of the inside of the restaurant so police could see if there was any way to enter the building without being seen. The drawing included a corridor from the kitchen to the men's room that was hidden from view of anyone in the dining area. Meanwhile, Freeman, who still has Karen Taylor at gunpoint, called the police station twice, seven minutes apart, from the restaurant phone 
and said that he wanted police to bring his estranged wife to the Rialto. He never stayed on the phone for very long. He would give his demands and quickly hang up. Freeman did not want to enter into conversation. Police didn't even entertain the idea of bringing Maddie to the scene. Freeman had been violent with her in the past, and police believed that if they brought her anywhere near the Rialto, that Freeman could attempt to kill her. While law enforcement was assessing next possible moves, Sullivan, Swartz, and Lieutenant Marshall tried to negotiate with Freeman over the restaurant phone and using a bullhorn. The three men all had varying degrees of negotiation training and experience. They decided to use the skills they had immediately available to them to resolve the situation instead of calling in expert negotiators. But Freeman wasn't answering the phone, so Sullivan ordered the desk sergeant to constantly ring the restaurant's main line while another officer called the second line from a nearby store. They hoped that the ringing would be so irritating that Freeman would pick up the phone and just talk in order to get the noise to stop. This tactic did not work. Freeman yelled out for the police to, quote, come in and get him. Freeman also yelled that this was his last day on earth and that Karen wouldn't be getting out alive. Karen, who was the mother of a nearly three-year-old, must have been terrified beyond belief hearing Freeman's threats. At 5.45 and 5.49 p.m., Freeman fired his weapon, with the first bullet shattering the front windows of the restaurant. The motive behind these shots are unclear, and they didn't hit anyone. Sometime after discharging his weapon, Freeman called the police station again, demanding to speak to the police chief. However, he quickly hung up the phone. I want to note here that Karen's father-in-law was the police chief in neighboring Royal Oak. But we don't know if Freeman knew who Karen was related to or not when he took her hostage, or if he knew this when he was calling to speak to the Ferndale chief. It's likely a coincidence, but I found it very interesting. The next move from police was to attempt to enter the building undetected to see if they could get an accurate location of Freeman. Officers Water and Couple provided backup to Sergeant Swartz, who entered the back door of the restaurant at 6 p.m. He tiptoed through the kitchen and to a spot where he could see Freeman and Karen through the swinging doors. He was able to relay their location to the other officers. Two more men entered the building and used the corridor the employee pointed out in the sketch to station themselves by the men's room without being seen. Everything was status quo until 6.29 p.m. This is when another shot rang out, but this time the shot hit someone. Karen Taylor screamed in pain and shouted that she'd been shot in the leg. Karen called out that she needed help, she needed a doctor, but if police came in, Freeman said he would kill her. Freeman was shouting at Karen as she called out for help, their voices and words overlapping. Police didn't know Freeman's motive for shooting Karen at that moment. Why then, after 90 minutes of holding her hostage? But they knew then that they had limited time left to end the siege and get Karen out safely. They had to assume that Freeman wasn't holding her as a negotiation tool, and they had to get her out before she came to more harm. Unfortunately, they would be too late. Just before 7 p.m., two teams of officers entered the building from the rear 
and positioned themselves by the men's room and in the kitchen. After entering, the officers heard another gunshot and Karen went silent. Sullivan ordered for shots to be fired above a doorway as a distraction, and Lieutenant Marshall threw a pot out of the kitchen to draw Freeman in the direction the officers wanted him to go. Freeman turned and fired at officers coming out of the kitchen while Swartz and Waters approached from the men's room and fired at Freeman, who was standing over Karen. By 7.03 p.m., the siege was over. Freeman had been fatally shot and was laying in a booth while Karen was slumped on the floor. One report states that Karen was found without clothes on. Karen was immediately rushed to hospital, suffering from a gunshot wound to the leg and to the face, with a bullet entering just below her left eye. Initial reporting also said that Karen had been attacked with a knife and had her throat slashed. Karen was whisked to nearby Beaumont Hospital where she was taken into the operating room. While Karen received medical care, the medical examiner attended the scene and pronounced Freeman dead. The scene was secured and evidence was collected and preserved. Witnesses were interviewed, and officers started the task of piecing together exactly what happened. This would prove impossible, as evidenced by competing versions of events in court documents. The next day, July 4th, Jack Bilski succumbed to his injuries and died in the hospital at 9.30 a.m. 65-year-old Jack had only retired a couple of months earlier, and he was enjoying his newfound free time after working as an electrician. Jack and his wife, Mary, were at the Rialto grabbing a bite to eat after a doctor's appointment, never imagining that the evening would end in tragedy. It was reported that Mary planned to sue Freeman's estate for $10,000 as compensation for emotional upset. Dan Boland's injuries were thankfully less severe, and he was reported to be in fair condition in the ICU. Karen was also in the intensive care unit in critical condition. There was speculation that the bullet that entered Karen's head may have been from a police weapon not from Freeman as originally thought. With the possibility that Karen had been caught in the crossfire, the bullet retrieved from Karen's facial wound was tested and compared against the officer's weapons and Freeman's gun. These tests proved that the bullet came from Freeman's gun, a three fifty seven revolver, and it is believed that the gunshot heard just before police entered the main dining room caused this injury. Dan Bolin was released from hospital 10 days after the siege. However, the 51-year-old's future in the force was in jeopardy. Doctors refused to give him a time frame for returning to work. His chest and wrist injuries would take a long time to heal, and his road to recovery would be long with no guarantee he would regain full function. Dan joined Mary Bilski and filed a suit against Freeman's estate. Charlie Pappas, owner of the Rialto, considered closing the doors for good, unsure if it was wise to reopen after the immense tragedy. Encouraged by his regulars and staff, Rialto underwent repairs and a renovation to make it feel like a new restaurant. Six weeks after the shooting, the Rialto resumed business. In October of 1984, a ceremony was held to honor the bravery of the police officers who attended the siege. 
Dan Bolin, still recovering from his injuries, received the department's Police Heart Award, while 11 other officers received citations. And what of Karen, whose terrifying two hours as a hostage ended so violently? She remained in the hospital, in and out of consciousness. The bullet had entered under her left eye, injuring the eye, her left ear, and damaging the part of her brain responsible for short-term memory and speech. She communicated by squeezing her husband's hand in answer to yes or no questions. One squeeze for yes, and twice for no. At first, Karen refused to have her daughter, Jennifer, brought to see her, firmly squeezing twice when asked, not wanting her three-year-old to see her bandaged up and hooked up to machines and tubes. By October, Karen was strong enough to sit in a wheelchair for brief periods of time. Her husband continued to ask if she wanted to see Jennifer, and one day she squeezed once, indicating she was ready for her daughter to see her. Not long after that visit, Karen began having seizures and fell into a coma. This time, she wouldn't wake up. By November, Karen was deteriorating. As well as the seizures, she was experiencing lung infections. And while her family hoped she would turn a corner and get better, she didn't. While her care, totaling over $150,000 at this time, was covered by workman's compensation, her husband had to worry about the other bills that were piling up. Greg had to quit his job to care for their daughter and to be by Karen's side. A local group, the JCs, fundraised to help Greg in his time of need. The JCs raised about $1,400 from donations and selling t-shirts that read, I am a special person. This allowed Greg some financial breathing room. In January 1985, Karen was transferred to a skilled nursing facility. After many surgeries and therapies, there was little hope of her ever waking up. On August 4, 1986, more than two years after the siege at Rialto, Karen died at the nursing facility. Her funeral was held on August 7th at St. James Catholic Church, also on Woodward Avenue, in Ferndale. Her daughter, Jennifer, was a month shy of her fifth birthday. 27-year-old Karen Taylor was buried at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery in Southfield. After his wife's death, Greg Taylor filed a suit against the city of Ferndale and officers Waters, Schwartz, and Sullivan to, quote, recover damages. In the suit, Greg said that Ferndale police officers and their superiors forced an unnecessary and avoidable confrontation by failing to negotiate with Freeman or summon expert assistance from a trained hostage negotiator and intentionally discharge their weapons without verifying the position of Taylor. The suit also argued that Karen was deprived of her liberty under the 14th Amendment and the city violated her constitutional rights by not providing the officers with adequate hostage negotiation training. In court, Greg's lawyer called an expert hostage negotiation witness to testify, and this witness provided their opinion about how the officers in attendance erred with their decision-making. The expert turned out to lack the experience needed to be considered an expert, and parts of his testimony were not taken into account when the court made its decisions. 
In addition, the court was worried about the precedent that it may set if officers were found to have done wrong because they didn't successfully rescue Karen. In the end, Greg failed to prove in court that Karen's rights had been deprived, and a summary judgment, which is when a judgment is made before going to trial, was granted. The court found that failure to successfully rescue an endangered person does not constitute a deprivation of a liberty interest. Lawsuits were filed against Freeman with Bolin and the personal representative of Bilski's and Taylor's estates filing tort actions against Freeman's estate. A tort action is when the victims of wrongdoing attempt to gain compensation in a civil case. Allstate Insurance Company, Freeman's homeowner's insurer, began to defend these tort actions. However, Allstate claimed that they were not responsible for defending Freeman and therefore paying out any compensation due to an exclusionary clause that read, quote, We do not cover any bodily injury or property damage which may reasonably be expected to result from the intentional or criminal acts of an insured person, or which is in fact intended by an insured person. As a result, Allstate filed suit against the estates of Jack Bilski and Alvin Freeman. Allstate argued that Freeman acted intentionally and criminally, and the deaths and injuries were reasonably expected due to his actions, and therefore, they were not obligated to provide coverage. Initially, a summary disposition was granted in favor of Allstate, which was then followed by an appeal from the estates of Jack and Freeman. The Court of Appeals then reviewed the case with the estates arguing that the exclusionary clause did not apply because there was the possibility that Freeman was not acting intentionally due to insanity. They presented evidence that Freeman was either unaware of what he was doing or lacked any self-control, meaning he did not act with intent, which did not invoke the exclusionary clause. The court said that insanity may preclude a person from forming a certain specific intent. And, quote, when a person cannot form an intent to act because of insanity, he or she has not acted intentionally, as that term is used in insurance policies. The Court of Appeals reversed the decision for summary judgment in favor of Allstate, stating that the summary disposition was improper. Of course, that wasn't the end of things for Allstate. In fact, this case bounced around the courts for nearly a decade. Allstate appealed to the Supreme Court, who ordered the Court of Appeals to reconsider its verdict. Decisions were overturned, appealed, affirmed. So many times it was hard to keep track. It seemed to be a never-ending loop. In the final court document I could find in this case, a summary disposition was again granted in favor of Allstate, with the court deciding that Freeman's actions fell within policy exclusions. This decision was affirmed at its last appeal, and it was decided that Freeman acted with intent, and that all deaths and injuries were a foreseeable consequence of his actions. After a decade of fighting, the estate of Jack Bilski walked away with nothing. Jack's wife, Mary, died before the case was resolved. Charlie Pappas eventually closed the doors on the Rialto. In 2002, it reopened under new ownership with a new name, Dino's. 
which was still operating until a few years ago. It appears that the business did not survive the pressures of COVID pandemic and shutdowns, and the restaurant is now listed as permanently closed. While the siege at the Rialto happened nearly 40 years ago, I think it's an important slice of Oakland County's history. Up next, we have an interview with former Ferndale Police Chief Mike Kitchen. Can you uh, introduce yourself for our listeners? I'm uh, Michael Kitchen. I I was with the Ferndale Police Department for 35 years, including uh, 1984 when this event happened, and I uh, retired in 2010 as the chief. Do you have a long attachment to the city of Ferndale? lived there for uh, 55 years. I was there since I was two years old. We used to attend services at St. James. So did I. Aww. <laughs> I was a St. James Parish member for my whole childhood. But I went to Ferndale High, not, not St. James High. St. James was the anchor of Ferndale for a long time. It was a blue-collar Catholic town. And St. James was by far the biggest parish. Everyone I knew went there, so everyone had five kids. Yeah, <laughs> and Ferndale, good Catholic Ferndale family. had twice as many people then as they do now, that's for sure. So let's talk about July 3rd, 1984. You were there that morning. It was the afternoon. I was home, and I got a call from the uh, DB secretary, Edna, and she said, Michael, we have a matter that might require your attention. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. And I said, what are you talking about, Edna? She was very close to uh, Dan Boland, and she was very upset. And she said, could you just come to the station right now? I said, I'll be right there. So I did. My whole life, I never lived further than a mile from the station. So I was there in probably 15 minutes, started to get a brief on what was going on. And the department, the police department was only... You could throw a stone from there to the Rialto. So it was pretty much uh, a staging area as well as the department. And Dan Boland was there having late lunch, cup of coffee, something like that? That's what I understand. Like I said, I was at home. I, I had worked. I was working midnight, so I had worked the night before. And I think I had that day off because we were getting ready to go out to dinner or something like that. Dan might have probably, it was 5 o'clock, he's probably having... Dinner, he was in there quite a bit. That was where a lot of the guys went for their meals. So he was there, and it was not uncommon for him to be there. Was, you know, he was well-known in there, and everyone was. You know, Charlie ran the place and took good care of us. And then Alvin Freeman, who was central to this incident, he was known to your department for a couple of reasons. He was a local business owner, and he also had some issues at home with his wife. Oh, yeah. Him and Maddie were... Both well-known to maybe not everybody, but I worked midnight, so I knew him because we would do what we called bank drops with him. And when he closed up, he had a party store in Eight Mile. When he closed up the party store, we'd physically put him in the car sometimes or and take him to the bank or we'd follow him to the bank so he could make his money drop. And uh, we were aware of family problems between him and Maddie, but it was mostly routine, our encounters with with Alvin were mostly routine, and he was a friendly guy, and he appreciated what we did. And on the morning of July 3rd, he had been in court, and then... I think he... I think that was the second. Okay, so it was the day before he was in court. Correct me if I'm wrong. It might have been that day, but I think it was the day before. 
and he was convicted of a an assault or something on his wife. Some people say that triggered him to go crazy like he did. I'm not positive on those events exactly. Okay, that was 40 years ago. I wasn't ago, involved almost. in that case. Yeah, <laughs> and I wasn't involved in that case. I didn't arrest him at the family dispute or whatever it was. I was not familiar with that exactly happening. So he's at the Rialto and gets into it with Dan Bolin. Dan might have been the officer, what we call the OIC of the case, officer in charge. But I'm pretty sure he knew Dan before that. I think he had just had other court cases, but I'm not positive. But anyhow, he knew Dan. I think the chain of events was that he ordered, saw Dan, yelled at Dan, and then shot him. Fired a couple right. rounds and hit another customer, too. And they staggered out of the restaurant. And uh, the first guys on the scene found him outside the restaurant down towards, I think, the McCole building, which is couple buildings down where there was a doorway and sort of a, you know, alcove, I guess you'd say. And that's where I think they ran into Dan and the other guy, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And then uh, Captain Sullivan was in charge of the whole thing. I think uh, Marshall was there and Swears. That was the command guys that were there. It was the captain, a lieutenant, and I think Swears was a sergeant. But, uh, yeah, I did, like I said, I got there less than an hour after the shots were fired, that's for sure. Did they call everybody in, sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation? Yeah, I think they did. We had quite a few people there, that's for sure, but not on the inner perimeter. This was before we had a SWAT team, but we knew how to do SWAT stuff. Right, so you just weren't calling it SWAT. It was not an official SWAT team. Shortly thereafter, we had one, but... We had trained, you know, for this kind of stuff, but not in a really organized official capacity. So I think the the call was for AU Army guys get here, and that's how Swears and, and uh, Dave Waters got there. They are both military guys. I don't think John Marshall was, but they had him safely secured in that building. I think they, in fact, I know they tried to negotiate with him and had no luck at all. No, and he was in there with Karen Taylor. He had grabbed her right after he shot Bolin and uh, told, I guess he screamed for everyone to get out of the restaurant. I think everyone did after that. And yeah. then he put himself in a big booth, like sort of in the middle of the restaurant. I didn't see any of this until I entered after he was already dead. Karen had been evacuated. I was on the roof when this all happened. Were you on the roof of the, the restaurant or were you across the street yes. on the roof? That was someone else. Okay. We were trying to get a sniper shot through the window, but he had been smart enough to close the blinds. So we couldn't get a shot through the glass. So I was on the roof with a shotgun trying to get a shot into there. There's a skylight up there, and I was not conspicuously prying at this skylight because I couldn't see through it because it was old and greasy, you know, from from being in a restaurant. So I was trying to pry up the edges to see if I could get a look inside. And eventually I did get a look inside, but not at Alvin, not where he was. So I was like, well, and I told him the captain wanted me to see if I could get a shot. And I, I just had to tell him that I had a view, but not of him. 
and it was kind of risky to be running around, you know, on a window yeah. that he could obviously see me through my shadow at least. So it was kind of dicey and I never did accomplish what I was sent up there to do. And then when they decided to make entry, there was a diversion inside and I was part of the diversion outside. And uh, the diversion inside was, I think they threw pots and pans away from the shoot team to divert his attention. And at the same time, we had other officers positioned outside to shoot the plate glass windows out of the front of the building. And I just started firing off shotgun rounds on the roof. So there was a lot of noise and confusion. We didn't have flashbangs and the stuff we have now. So no. we created as much diversion and confusion as we could. And then two guys went through a hidden passageway from the men's john into the dining room. And they saw Alvin there and they killed him. And Alvin, prior to this, had been a relatively normal local businessman, maybe had some domestic issues, but this was not anything that anybody could have predicted. No, no. very unpredictable. Well, I mean, in hindsight, he was a character, you know, you, but he was never aggressive and he was always grateful for our assistance and this and everything. But, you know, evidently something pushed him around the bend, that's for sure. But no, we didn't expect him to do anything like this. I probably did bank drops with him at least five or six times. It was just routine. Back in those days, we did that for anyone who asked. This standoff, you guys had to shut down Woodward Avenue. Yep. Which is a huge, you know, for listeners that are not from the Detroit area, Woodward Avenue, I think at the time it was only six lanes with parking on each side? Nope. It's an eight-lane highway with a median okay. back then. Now, closing down yep. Woodward was a huge undertaking because this is, this is a main thoroughfare. We talked about this a little in the episode. Woodward was is a trunk line. It's a big, important road connecting Detroit and the Oakland County suburbs. And I think it was shut down southbound at Nine Mile. Everyone was diverted. And it wasn't just Ferndale PD then. By then, we had all kinds of help. We had Hazel Park, Royal Oak, Pleasant Ridge, probably Oak Park, you yeah. know, to handle that kind of stuff. I'm not sure of all the agencies that came, but we Community had a mutual aid, aid pack. Yeah, mutual everybody. aid. Yeah. Which yeah. is important. Yeah. How long did mm-hmm. the standoff last? I think it started at five and ended after seven ish. I've been on many 12 hour standoffs and this wasn't one of them. I mean, I got there, I got the lay of the land briefed on everything. They told me what they were going to do. They said, you get on the roof. Up I went and uh, they had already been in there and knew exactly where he was. And so I wasn't part of the planning. I was just part of the execution. Right. And Karen Taylor, she had a connection to Royal Oak Police. Yeah. And I don't know the details of that. That was horrible. Yeah. I think her father-in-law was the police chief in Royal Oak. That rings a bell. That that could be true. Yeah. And she was just picked randomly. He singled out Dan Bolin, but he didn't single out Karen for any reason other than she was there. That's my understanding. And I don't know how often Alvin actually went to the Rialto because his store wasn't anywhere near there. 
his store was down, and I don't know where his house was, but his store was down on uh, Ava, west of Woodward. But he could have been a regular for all I knew, and, and he may have been familiar with Karen, but I don't know that. In those days, I wasn't going to the Rialto because I was working there. No, so they weren't, that wasn't an option for you. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to share about that day at the Rialto? <laughs> it was a whole whole bunch of people put into a real big predicament that afterwards it was examined with a microscope just to see how it was actually handled. And the captain, who was ordinarily in a small department like that, the chief would have run that shore. Nowadays, we'd set up an incident command and the inner outer perimeters and do all this stuff, set up a command post. And even in a short situation like that, there was a lot of stuff because I ran the SWAT team when I was a captain and, and when I was a chief. And we did a lot of incident command training. And it came as a result of this incident where, by necessity, they effectively did an incident command situation and a flawless entry after securing this guy. And when it was examined by Los Angeles County, SWAT did a debrief on it. They said it was textbook. And like I said, after that, we got a SWAT team together real quick. And then that, that grew into a, the second biggest or the third biggest SWAT team in the, in the state for a while. And that's when I ran it. So I, I just say with the, the guys that actually did the entry and the shoot, they're just good guys, just pressed into a situation they didn't, certainly didn't anticipate, and they just pulled it off. The only bad thing is, is that poor Karen got, was a, she was a casual collateral guy. damage. And, yeah. And, and, and that maniac, he got what was coming to him. So we were lucky to have the right guys there at the right time. Poor Dan Boland, he just died last year, I think. He lived a long, <laughs> a long life afterwards, and he took a long shot. It's just old age that killed him. I mean, he he came out of that okay. I mean, after yeah, <laughs> he spent some time in Beaumont. Shot. Yeah, he spent some time in rehab and all that. But uh, yeah, he didn't suffer too many ill effects of that. I, I never heard him talk about it after that. And he was a funny guy. That's about all anyone should really remember is that. We uh, put together a plan, and they executed it perfectly. Yeah, and you, you know, on your day off, you're on the roof of a restaurant with a shotgun trying to get in. Yeah, I wish I could have. I didn't have the right weapons to take that shot, but if I could have got a shot, I'd have taken it, but it didn't work out that way. Said I was a noisemaker. That's all right. And it worked out okay. 